Good morning. My name is Jessica Kyle, and I am a member here at McLean Presbyterian. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 6 through 16. It can be found on page 351 of the Bible in front of you. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house in my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. But behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father." I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper. If you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel, be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these you must add, you have an abundance of workmen, stone cutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. My name is Rob, and I am one of the assistant pastors here. Let me say welcome again to those of you in the sanctuary, to those in our fellowship hall, and those who are joining us on our live stream. This morning, we're continuing in our, on our, <clears throat> in our sermon series, The Gospel in the Life of David. And in fact, today, we're bringing it to an end. This will be the final sermon in the series. It's been about four months now that we've been tracking on God's work in David's life, uh, starting back when he was chosen to be a king, though he was the most unlikely of candidates. Uh, We trace God's work in those early days of defeating Goliath and escaping Saul and finding military victories. And then remember, we slowed down for those dark nights of disobedience and failure, and this morning we come to David's final days. So pray with me and let's ask God to speak to us and work in our souls this morning. Father, this morning we come from all different situations, all kinds of circumstances, and yet we all need the same thing. We all need to hear from you. We need you to open our eyes to see, to open our ears to hear your words of life. We ask that your spirit would be at work in all of us this morning. 
the one that preaches and in those who hear. All of us need your grace more than we even know. Would you come in power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It was almost 20 years ago now, I was with my friend Alan, and we were standing in another friend's dorm room. His name was Doug. Doug was a year ahead of us. He was graduating that year, and he had landed his first job with the VF Corporation down in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we were standing in his room, and we said, Doug, what are you going to be doing for them? And he said, uh, change management. And we said, that's great. What, what is it? Uh, and he said, uh, over about 30 seconds to a minute in his response, he said, well, change happens and change is difficult and you have to lead through change and people resist change and, ch- and he just kept saying change like 40 times. And so then after he finished, we said, okay, yeah, but what are you going to do? Like, like when you walk into your office and sit down, what's going to happen? Right? And so then he went on again about change and more change. And so we walked out of the room and Alan said, Rob, I still don't know what Doug's going to do. And I said, I don't know if Doug knows what Doug's <laughs> going to do. But <clears throat> the reality is Doug did know what he was going to do. Uh, the reason uh, uh, I couldn't understand it is the problem was with me. I was this kind of oblivious 20-year-old kid that didn't realize uh, that change rocks the world. Transition rocks the world of businesses and organizations. It causes chaos and confusion in the lives of individuals. Change and transition can actually unsettle entire societies. So we see in our text this morning that it is a time of change and transition for for David and for Solomon, and in fact, for the entire people of God. And so we see in this passage uh, what's important at a juncture like this, what's focused on what exactly should David and Solomon do and know at a time like this, and it might be helpful for us to pay attention as well, because I would imagine many of us this morning are facing change and transition, right? We just asked a few minutes ago for some to raise their hand because they're graduating from high school, and we should know better than to ask Presbyterians to raise their hand, right, because they're just kind of like this right here. They just they can't really do it. Um, Listen, graduation, that's transition and change both for the graduate and for the parents, right? Some of us are changing jobs. Some of us have just moved. Some of us are just about to move. Some of us are adding little members to our family. Some of us are facing those disorienting changes that come from losing a loved one. Many of our friends are facing that reality this day. And that's just individually. Think about us corporately. Think about us as a family, as a community. We've said here at MPC, we want to build out these facilities so that we can deepen our gospel influence. We're praying about that, right? Our staff numbers are growing. We're trying to figure out where to put these new staff. So we do things like say, where can we put them? I got it. Let's cut the senior pastor's office in half. (laughs) Stick someone there. Right? I mean, we would put them in closets, but our current staff are in closets, so that idea is not going to work. And we, we don't want to just deepen our influence, we want to broaden it. So we're saying next year we want to start a new work in Fairfax because we want to broaden our gospel influence, change and transitions individually commu- and as a community. How do we navigate them faithfully? First Chronicles 22 
directs us to three points that we're going to look at this morning. Those three points we'll see are a common destination, promises made and kept, and the task at hand. A common destination, promises made and kept, and the task at hand. Our passage begins with these words. Then he, that is David, called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. We get the context a little bit more if we look at this same account in another Old Testament book called 1 Kings. There in the second chapter it says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. David's rule and reign is about to come to an end. This is a transition of power, not just his rule and his reign, but actually he's coming to the end of his life. Many forms of government might not have um, term limits, but every life does. And so here he is. The words we read this morning comes from someone facing that reality. That's who's speaking this morning, coming to the end of his life. And what about the one listening? What about the one receiving those words? We hear Solomon. Solomon hears these words. He's he's at the beginning of his reign, and look at the task before him. He's called to build the house of the Lord. Talk about pressure for your first hundred days in office, right? You know, like, if I'm Solomon, I'm saying, like, hey, can we start with some low-hanging fruit, maybe? Like, I got it. How about I just build some stables, Right? Why don't we start with, or maybe like mixed use development, right? I could build some shops, maybe a kava, that should go well here. We're really going to start out of the gate with building a house for the God of Israel. Our passage has our, these people, David and, and Solomon, in, in a common destination beginnings and endings. Let me ask you this morning, how are you feeling? What are you thinking about this new season of life you're heading into? Whether it's college or retirement or parenthood? Or maybe this question, how do you process the days that have passed in your life? Maybe you're advanced in years now. That's the best euphemism I could think of for really old. Maybe you're advanced in years now. And you're looking back on your life and you're trying to think, how do I reckon with all that I've done, both good and bad, and all that I've left undone? How are you navigating these transitions? It's interesting when we find ourselves in those transitions, all kinds of emotions are present, right? When we're, we've got something big before us or we're looking back on the past, we're, we're faced with anxiety and fear and doubt and guilt and regret. And this morning, if, if we want to avoid those things or if we hope to be free from them this day, we need to do what David does. And that's he revisits promises made and kept by his God. In verses 7 through 10 of our text, David revisits the promises God made to him. And actually, if you'll remember in this series, we spent some time looking at those. It was late April, James was preaching, and we were looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
And in our passage today, David's actually reflecting back on that encounter that he had in that chapter there, 2 Samuel 7, that encounter he had with God. Remember, Nathan spoke to him the promises of God about a son, about a kingdom that would be established forever, about a house that would be built, about a steadfast love that would never depart from him. In that chapter, God made a promise to David, a covenant with him, commitments to him. And it all started out, if you think back at Second chapter 7, it all started out in this conversation about the house of the Lord. David said, hey, you might remember these words, I live in a house of cedar while the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. That's how he started out there. He's saying, listen, I live in this 3,000 foot, square foot colonial And the ark of the Lord, the one who has rescued us time after time, the one whom we worship, is out in something that we got from REI. And so he wants to build a house for the Lord, but 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8 of our passage this morning say, as David says to his son, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but... The word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. What are we to make of this? These words about David not being able to build the house of the Lord because of the blood that he shed is a bit of new news to the readers. Uh, he could be talking about how maybe ceremonially, ceremonially or ritually he's unclean because of the blood that he shed. And so he can't build this temple. He can't build this house of the Lord. But that doesn't necessarily need to be the case because we don't ever see him condemned for these wars. In fact, God gives him victory and it's these wars that bring about the peace that the people of God are now enjoying. It seems like David is remembering something back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Before God's people ever got to the promised land, he said to them, listen, when you get to the promised land, you're going to arrive at a time and a place where you have rest and where you have peace and where you have safety. And at that time, That's when you're going to build my house where you will come and worship me. So David seems to be remembering that and seems to be thinking, okay, that's that's now. God, God used me. My purpose was to wage the wars that bring the peace that my son and his kingdom now enter into. You know, Solomon, his very name is derived from the word that means peace. So what's... David doing. In in this season of transition, he's revisiting the promises of God. It's like he's pulling his son beside him and he's saying, listen, son, God made these promises and here we now stand. He has done it. He has brought them to pass. All right, and it would be a tragedy if we walked out of here this morning and we didn't see all that was at play here. Remember, we said these promises were made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember when all that Bathsheba stuff happened? You you, you remember when all that uh, steal your friend's wife and murder him to cover it up stuff happened? That was 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
right? So, so get the story straight here. God makes these astounding promises to David of a kingdom that would endure in a steadfast love. David betrays him in the most egregious and ultimate way, but yet here he stands at the end of his life and God's promises have still come true. God has remained faithful to his word. Because you know what? God's commitment to David, it wasn't based on David's performance and achievement. God's commitment and his affection for David, it was rooted in his own character, his own faithfulness and mercy and grace. And friends, that's good news no matter what season of life you're in. That's good news we desperately need, and that's good news that we are absolutely terrible at believing. Right, because if we were going to write the story, I'm, I'm inclined to think that many of us would write it this way. God makes these astounding promises, David betrays him, and so then David ends his life in futility, maybe because he's done some kind of irreparable harm to the kingdom of God. And you know why we're, we're tempted to think that way? It's because we've grown up in this broken, fallen world. And by that, I mean a world that's departed and ignored and rebelled against God. And so everything in our world, let me be more specific than that. Everything at Langley High School and everything in the boardrooms of Tyson's Corner and even uh, everything or, or almost everything around the time trials at your neighborhood swimming pool scream at you and at me that life and relationships are about the survival of the fittest. Right? And the gospel comes and speaks to us about forgiveness for failures. You see that? I think many of us are inclined, or some of us are inclined to think of God as some kind of cosmic stroke and turn judge, right? Just waiting to disqualify us. Uh, you, you might not be aware of the swim culture. I, I wasn't, uh, there was one uh, public pool in my uh, entire county growing up. We swam in creeks and ponds. But my wife grew up in the swim culture, and uh, the, the stroke and turn judge is the one, it's the referee at the swim meet that lets you know whether or not you're doing the stroke correctly. And if you're not, you're disqualified, right? So my wife is a stroke and, and turn judge. I call her, affectionately, the dream crusher, all right? Because, right, like she's like, little Sally has just swam the race of her life. Sally, that's great. You just swam a PR, and you might get to swim in the A meet now, but you didn't touch the wall with both hands at the same time, so it doesn't even count, right? So... I figure by the end of the summer, we will have alienated at least 75% of the families at Mantua Swim and ten Tennis Club. Um, it's a great way to start our work there uh, in Fairfax next year. But friends, God isn't uh, a cosmic stroke and turn judge waiting for you to get to the end of your race, the end of your life, and then disqualify you. Let me clarify, you, you have broken the rules, all right? You deserve to be disqualified, but the reason you're not is actually found in these very promises right here. Look at verse 10, especially, 
especially the specific words, he shall be my son and I will be his father. It's promised to David, speaking about a son, but he says, actually, David, this son that I'm talking about, he shall be my son and I will be his father. We see that these promises aren't just talking about Solomon. They're talking about a true and greater son that is to come. These verses aren't just talking about the birth of Solomon and his kingdom. They're talking about the birth of Christ and his kingdom. And I can say that confidently because it's exactly what the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews says in the first chapter. Right? He, he's, the writer's talking to these new Jewish Christians trying to explain who Jesus is. And he says, guys, you think angels are great Jesus is better than angels because to what angel did God ever say, he shall be my son and I will be his father? So you say, so what? Why why does that matter? Solomon was to bring peace and rest to God's people. And he did. But was it a full and final peace and rest? All all you got to do is keep reading the history and you know that conflict came again. You know that war came again. You know, in fact, they got sent out into exile. They didn't even get to stay in the land. So these verses point to a son and a king that would come and bring a truer and greater peace and rest, a full and final peace and rest. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is for those who have trusted in Jesus for, as their only hope of salvation. We have a hope for true and, and eternal rest and peace. Let me ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you trusted Christ in that way? Let me return back to the swimming pool for one more uh, illustration. Uh, Swim team kids, swim team families, maybe you can track with this. When it comes to the gospel, Jesus got in the pool and, and he swam the race that we should have, right? Perfect strokes. And then he took the disqualification that we deserve so that we might get the victory, so that we might be on his team and in his family. In times of transition, friends, revisit the purposes of God. That's a common destination we all find ourselves in, beginnings and endings. But we need to revisit the promises of God because there we're reminded that our failures don't undo his faithfulness. God can use the failures of a king to bring peace to his people. God can use a Roman cross to bring peace to his people. He can use your failures and my failures He can redeem them and weave them sovereignly to bring about his good and faithful, his good and glorious deeds. Let me ask you this. What's your plan for this week? How how are you going to revisit the promises of God? It's all well to sit here and listen to this and say, yeah, that sounds nice, but what's your plan? Maybe go to a community group. Maybe go to one of these intergenerational Bible studies they're hosting here. Maybe start your day 15 minutes earlier so that you can spend time in God's word. Uh, I'll give you a goal for the week. Would you sit down with maybe one of your kids or maybe a friend 
and just revisit how God's promises have come true in your life? Could you do that once this week? The common destination, promises made and kept, and then the task at hand. We still have this whole business of building the house of God. Solomon's been called to that, verses 11 through 13 speak to that. Now, the original audience of 1 Chronicles, this passage, these verses, they would have sounded familiar to them. And Maybe if you've studied the Old Testament, they sounded a little bit familiar to you as well. Right, this is, this is Moses and Joshua all over again, right? Joshua had been given this great task to lead the people of God into the promised land. Moses, kind of like David, had been said, no, you're not going to go here. You're not going to go to the promised land in the same way that David wasn't going to build the temple. And so Solomon and Joshua are given these similar instructions that, hey, if you want to have prosperity and success, then you're going to need wisdom. You're going to need to rely on on the law and trust in God's ways, right? They will lead you to success and prosperity. It's also clear that no uh, matter how important the task, no matter how great your title or authority, that these basics still matter. Obedience, faithfulness, and holiness. So they're both told Solomon and David to be strong, I mean Solomon and Joshua to be strong and courageous. They needed to hear those words and Christians, if you're going to be a part of God's work, if you're going to be involved in it, you need to hear those words as well. Be strong and courageous. Maybe you're hoping you're going to be a light among your fellow lobbyists downtown in D.C. With those late nights and in those social settings that you're going to stand with integrity. You need to be strong and courageous knowing that God goes with you. Maybe you're the parent of a teenager. And you know that your teenager is going through all these physiological and psychological changes, spiritual challenges, hormones fluctuating. And you want to help them understand the great promises of God. You need to be strong and courageous and rest in those promises. Trust in them. Maybe you actually are a teenager, right? You need to be strong and courageous, not because of who you are, but because of who your God is. You can be strong and courageous as you face the task before you. But, but David doesn't just offer instructions to Solomon. He doesn't just give him some advice and say, all right, well, go get him. Good luck with all that. He actually provides for the task as well, right? Look at those numbers there. Okay, 100,000 talents of gold. That, that's a ton of gold, guys. Actually, that's 3,700 tons of gold. Okay, a million talents of silver. I was like, I don't remember the vocab word for million in Hebrew. Uh, And so I went and looked at it in the original text, and it says a thousand thousands. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right, that's good. That works. Now, there's some debate. Is this hyperbole or is this literal when it comes to these numbers? But what is clear is that David feels like the house of the Lord should have the very best 
All right, there's no good enough for government work here when it comes to building the house of the Lord. And he's committing to make sure his son has all that he needs. And so that's why he can say, arise and work, the Lord is with you. It's because Solomon now has a clear task. He has all that he needs to perform it. And so there's nothing to wait on, arise and work. And it's the same thing for you and for me. As we follow the true and greater son of David, we've got a clear task. We've got all we need, right? Just like Solomon, it says says he had peace and rest, and so he could do the work of God. We've just talked about how we have a true peace and a true rest, and so we can be about the work of God. You know why? Because when we actually understand and believe and trust in the peace and rest of, of God, we've got all kinds of new capacity, Because it's incredibly time-consuming when we think it's up to us to win the approval of others, to live for the approval and acceptance of others. It's incredibly time-consuming when we're trying to outperform our neighbors or our family. It's incredibly time-consuming when we think it's all up to us to provide for every need of our family members. But when we realize that we are accepted and approved by the creator of the universe, and if we trust in him, he'll provide all our needs, we got all kinds of free time. We've got all kinds of new capacity to love and speak in ways that show that we're about the work of God. As we look at the life of David over these past four months, we see this. We see that this is what's important. In our living and our dying, in our successes and in our failures, what we need to do is trust and know and believe the promises of God and that they don't become untrue even in the midst of our darkest failures. If we believe and trust that, we're positioned to arise and work, to be about the work of God in our own lives and as a community here in McLean and in Fairfax to the uttermost parts of the world. Let us pray. Father, would you meet us where we're at? Whatever season of life it might be, in the beginning, some great task, at our end of days, would you meet us there and would you help us to remember this day your promises and your goodness? That even in our failures, you are faithful to us because your goodness and faithfulness is rooted in who you are, your holiness and grace. Help us to trust that in our souls and in trusting that, help us to move into your work, advancing your kingdom for your glory and your renown. In Christ's name we pray, amen.